to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Atrocity crimes. Timely and appropriate actions. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kate Ferguson, Co-Executive Director of Protection Approaches, and Dr. Jess Gifkins, Senior Lecturer in International Relations at the University of Manchester and the Queering Atrocity Prevention Research Fellow at Protection Approaches. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. For those who aren't familiar with your work, could you give a little background on what Protection Approaches does and your your unique approach to atrocity prevention? Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks ever so much for inviting us on. I'm such a fan of this podcast, so I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I guess maybe I'll stand with like our mission as, as a charity. So we're a registered human rights charity here in the UK, and our mission is to help transform how identity-based violence is understood, and that in doing so, we will also help to transform how it is prevented. And so that is a lot of the way that our work is conceived and then how we decide what it is that we do and what we don't do. Um, That's kind of our theory of change is really the emphasis is changing how the problem of identity-based violence is sort of conceived. Um, We don't necessarily put the whole burden on our small but brilliant team on the prevention implementation bit. Uh, We define identity-based violence as being any violence physical or structural, that is motivated or legitimized by how the perpetrator conceives their victim's identity or an aspect of their identity. That might be how the perpetrator sees or interprets their religion or political belief, um, who they love, um, their gender, their race, their age, um, their disability, their profession, their class, their socioeconomic status, and so on. Um, What is helpful for us, I think, about having such an encompassing understanding of identity-based violence is it's not a a legal framework um, and it is inherently inclusive. There aren't the boundaries of of sort of who is and is not included in in, um, experiencing hate based on how others see um, their, their identity. And so that includes, you know, hate crime, violent extremism, Um, identity-based mass violence Um, and then maybe what makes us a little bit different or maybe what defines our approach is that fundamental to protection approaches view of this kind of violence Um, and we're certainly not the only ones to see this this is a sort of lived experience throughout the world identity-based violence to a greater or lesser extent exists in every society and in all states That is not the same as us drawing any kind of moral um, equivalence of experience or of responsibility, but it can be a really helpful starting point. You know, if all states, for example, are both perpetrator and protector, 
then all states can in fact do better. Um, and I suppose like at its simplest, that is what protection approaches tries to do. You know, we look at the pathology of identity-based violence and we try and improve that understanding of where it comes from, how it manifests, how it can be prevented. And we begin that work domestically um, in and with communities here in the UK. We work to improve UK contributions towards violence prevention abroad. Um, and then we work with wonderful partners like the Global Centre um, towards a much more inclusive and intersectional or perhaps a, you know, a more joined up approach to violence, discrimination um, and inequity. Um, I don't want to talk too long on the first answer, but given that we are on the podcast of the Global Centre, um, I wanted to just say something else, most particularly about R2P, um, because the Global Centre, of course, is like chiefly concerned with those crimes covered by the UN principle of the responsibility to protect you know, genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. And Protection Approaches has always, since the very beginning, had a core programme on mass atrocity prevention. But of course, not all mass atrocity crimes are identity based, even though they very often can be. Um, and so I just want to say two things about maybe how our work intersects with that piece. First of all, is at our heart, and I'm not just saying this because we're on your podcast, Jacqueline, but we are an R2P organisation. We have in our founding documents an obligation to help strengthen the UK's contribution to the collective responsibility to protect people from atrocity crimes. And we've always, right from the very beginning, believed in that responsibility to protect as being a concept that can't only live in the rooms of the United Nations where it was born, but that it has to like be devolved through those composite parts of states and societies. And so protection approaches is part of our efforts to do that. Um, and so that's kind of how we see the approach to identity-based violence, R2P and atrocity prevention as, as intersecting, which um, I think that's probably quite important in what makes us a little bit different. And then the second thing I want to say, because I'm mindful of what we might be talking about later on, and, and it's so wonderful that Jess can be part of this conversation, is that our approach to identity-based violence, whether that is hate crime here in the UK, or whether it's looking at what's happening in Ukraine, the prevention and response of that kind of violence has to always be inclusive and intersectional. And that it has to be rooted in an understanding of past, present and potential power structures. Um, and that's not a nice to have. That's not something that comes later, but fundamental to a safer, more sustainable and fairer world. And so inherently our work is political um, and that can be challenging, but power is politics and politics is power. So I think that um, that is unapologetically part of our work. Thanks for that, Kate. Um, so many things I want to I want to pick up on in what you said, but um you know, I, I really appreciated in your definition there how you emphasized not it's not identity is not just about who people are, but who they're perceived as by the perpetrator. I think so often the emphasis is on 
your own identity and not on what that identity means to someone else and how that affects their behavior. Um, yeah. So I really liked that. But um, you also, you know, talked about how this is relevant in every society and in every state. And I think one of the things that's unique about protection approaches by contrast to many of the the other organizations we look at is um, that you're working in the UK and really looking at UK um, approaches, both internationally and domestically. So what does um, inclusive and intersectional approaches in a country like the UK look like? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And I I feel like the really honest answer is that we are trying to work that out. Um, I, I think that um, inclusive and intersectional prevention isn't ever something that is achieved or done. It's something to be sort of strived towards something to be held accountable to and to constantly adapt and rec- you know and kind of recognize it, it, it isn't it is about an, an ambition towards consistency and consistency even and perhaps especially for those of us that work in human rights is incredibly hard to always achieve you're always trying to make these compromises um so that's my kind of humble caveat um but one of the cornerstones of protection approaches right from the very, very beginning is that identity-based violence prevention is not needed in some places some of the time, but everywhere all of the time. And we knew that it was going to be impossible for us to create a new organization committed to identity-based violence prevention, um, or even that was only going to look at mass atrocity prevention without beginning that work at home um even if and so we founded protection approaches when 2014 some colleagues in the atrocity prevention sector thought we were absolutely mad um then brexit and trump happened and rapidly everyone seemed to change their mind um i mean i'm mostly being tongue-in-cheek there but it was not that usual to talk about domestic responsibilities then um My co-director and co-founder, Andy Fern, comes from a background of community organizing. And so our our domestic work and our understanding of domestic responsibility has always, right from the kind of earliest, tiniest programs that we did, had the principles of community building at its heart. And one of the things that I, I am, of course, deeply biased, but what makes our work really special is that because we do so much work domestically but we work within a global community of practice we therefore are able to kind of like beg borrow steal you know draw on this global best practice on what works in having um inclusive approaches to difficult questions um and so that without a doubt strengthens our work i think um what that looks like in practice for for us, you know, we work with and alongside groups who are affected by hate crime or hate or discrimination, who might also at the same time be often at the front line of the community response to division and discrimination. Um, And also we work with kind of the local power structures. So what that might be local councils, city structures, 
the national government. Sometimes we might act as convener, sometimes we act as bridge. Nearly always, though, we are working towards community-led responses to hate and division, um, to kind of the prejudice and marginalization that comes first. Um, and thinking about those ways in which we can break down barriers between those that are most likely to experience this kind of violence and discrimination or have done already, and the public officials who are either kind of charged in our language with a kind of responsibility to help protect them, or slash and might in fact be part of that violent structure. Um, and so helping to kind of encourage whether it's sort of dialogue, transparency, community relationships, or more actually proactive, protective schemes. Um, and that always has to be inclusive. And, and that, that, in fact, seems like it should be easier to do in East London rather than in Eastern DRC. But actually what we have really learned, and again, without drawing an any kind of sense of equivalence of experience or responsibility, many of the challenges are really often shared. I mean, and I remember Andy once had this fabulous conversation when we did a, a workshop in, in Goma a couple of years ago on, um, the workshop was on something completely different. It was about sort of establishing risk frameworks on atrocity prevention or something. But Andy asked at the end if we could have a special session on barriers to community-led change where Andy was essentially asking for advice on community responses to change that he then took back to the work we were doing in East London. And it was just a kind of really interesting challenge and conversation of peers that were working in very, very difficult, difficult circumstances and different contexts. And of course, you know, East London for all its challenges is nothing compared to what's happening in Goma and Atori. And yet those challenges and those dynamics of power, those, those, parallels of mistrust were really really um prominent and that is such an equalizer for our field and that's often not how those conversations go across so we're thinking in the UK not only how we can be inclusive within the sphere of work on the local level but how we can be inclusive in a kind of global sense of knowledge exchange um but big part of that work is assuming that we don't have the answers always but nor is it stepping away you know the the real sweet bit is a kind of symbiotic responsibility where we're able to kind of shoulder some responsibility in an area that we're actually quite good at while also you know being reinforced by those that are much more informed than us about another part of the puzzle like that's kind of how I think we conceive of this wonderful messy movement that we're part of and so what that means is that like one of the great things about that way of working is that the best ideas come from outside of the organization. And so our work, for example, with East and Southeast Asian community partners across the UK since the beginning of the pandemic in response to massive increases of anti-Asian hate um, came from conversations that we had with our community partners who essentially were saying, you know, wherever they were in the country, they just desperately needed support and resource and some political spotlight to meet this very sharp uptick in need, demand, anxiety and burden. And that's where our On Your Side project came from. And so now Protection Approaches coordinates this 15-part national nationwide consortium that delivers 
the UK's only third party um, hate crime reporting and support phone line to support Eastern and Southeast Asian victims of hate. And 12 of those partners are community partners. And we only hold that convening until one of those partners can, can take it over. And it's a really fantastic kind of rich project. It wasn't our idea. And, you know, we provide some of that support. And likewise, that's where the Queering Atrocity Prevention Programme came out of, right? It was it was Jess that came up with this idea that came to us. And now we are so privileged and lucky and excited by doing this very rich conversation. Um, and it would be great for us to be able to say, yeah, we came up with it, or we didn't. The best ideas. And that's like the bit about inclusive and intersectional working. It's not a burden on us as organizations. It's how our work like thrives and finds this kind of, you know, and you know what what is needed in a way that is much more exciting. Since you mentioned the the queering atrocity prevention report, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about where this program came from. I know you said it was Jess's idea, but maybe the two of you can can talk about how it came about and sort of the motivation for it. Sure, um, I can start on that. So um, I've I've worked in on the responsibility to protect as a researcher for a long time now. So it's about 15 years. And I did my PhD in the Asia-Pacific R2P Centre quite some time ago. Um, And I think what we've seen, having worked in in this sphere for a long time, we've seen increasingly intersectional conversations happening, uh, particularly around um, around ethnicity, uh, around sort of post-colonial critiques and around questions of gender. Um, and what what we hadn't really seen was the was the intersection with with queer identities, um, and so for me it was having worked in this space for a long time, and then um, in my personal life, my partner um, transitioned gender a few years ago, and through through her experience and and our experience as a couple, um, we became um, you know involved in and invested in. Um, trans politics in the UK and, you know, in, um, you know, became part of trans community in the UK. And it was the disconnect that I was seeing there between my sort of personal and professional worlds that um, we're seeing, you know, really quite a, um, a an aggressive uh, backlash against trans identities in the UK at the moment. And, um, for those of us who work on the responsibility to protect, you know, and, and in genocide uh, studies more broadly, like we understand that dehumanisation is a is a core risk factor um, and a core uh, precursor to to atrocity crimes. So, um, yeah, it was the the bringing together of these two different worlds for me, but not seeing that represented, I guess. Um, in you know um i guess i felt that colleagues or some colleagues at least in the in the sort of r2p sphere weren't weren't fully aware of what was happening um against trans and queer communities and that kind of backlash so that was the that was the impetus for the project was to reconcile i guess the personal and professional and then in summer 2021 that kind of very rapid and catastrophic withdrawal of the us and the uk from afghanistan and then that seizure of power by the Taliban, I think it forced a new urgency. Um, And we were then sort of writing the report 
in the shadow or, or as as these sort of rapid evacuations were, were being organized by the global you know lgbtqi rights community um but also as the atrocity prevention community was kind of reeling in a little bit i think or i felt this i can speak for myself not fathers but like that that the the devastating decision making that summer i think held up to all of us the extent to which mass atrocity prevention thinking let alone lgbtqi inclusive atrocity prevention thinking continues to be absent from the most seismic foreign policy choices even by the state that claims to lend atrocity prevention the greatest attention and the greatest resource and so there was something about that moment a very long moment over that you know those awful months where there was evidently a very particular needs and vulnerabilities to the lgbtqi community in afghanistan that was absolutely not being talked about that the global lgbt rights movement massively mobilized um without i think much solidarity to be frank from others that could have stepped up and done things differently at least initially um and then you know in terms of conversations from the atrocity prevention community there was a kind of like shock and horror um and i really think that that context was 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 quite important for us and then of course you know look just just a year ago then russia invades ukraine with president putin using his homophobic and transphobic articulations of kind of sexually liberal and decadent west as part of his justification um and i would like to say that one of our co-authors in that paper Dean Cooper Cunningham has taught me so much about that particular dynamic of the the Russian regime's use of political homophobia and transphobia in foreign policy. And so you see this kind of triangulation um and absolutely as as Jess said I think for our team too there's just been this growing dismay and frustration and concern um and anxiety, I think, at this encroachment of LGBTQI people's rights here in the UK, and especially on trans rights, this kind of unpicking and and, and demonizing, it, it has helped, I think, frame us as an organization, think about um, the urgency of this work and the need for it, but also it speaks to something that is fundamental to protection approaches, way of seeing violence prevention, which is to seek a harmonization in the way that the UK approaches identity-based violence prevention abroad and identity-based violence prevention at home. Um, And I think in that case of Russia and Ukraine and LGBTI rights, you can actually see really there in that one example how the ethical commitment to protect people from violence because of who they are and the national security interests relating to identity-based narratives, violence and exclusion really come together, right? And, you know, I don't want us to go off on a tangent. And I absolutely do not want to disavow or ignore or dilute UK domestic responsibility for homegrown transphobia. We seem to be really quite excelling at that. But let's not ignore the fact that those Russian communications networks and those Russian transnational hate-based networks are deliberately exacerbating the trans rights row in the UK because it's undermining the very heart of our democracy. 
Now, I don't know if that's why Nicola Sturgeon stood down from the SNP, but there is a real question about how these hate-based dialogues and communications are even being conceived by our national security services, not to mention kind of with a rights-based approach. So I really think it is a piece of work that began with a report, but we just seem to kind of be really at the beginning of a very multi-dimensional conversation that we're very excited to be a little small part of and very grateful to Jess for, you know, um, getting it going, really. I I really appreciate that perspective um, of what Kate just said, that it's it's really just the beginning um, of a conversation. Because uh, I agree, you know, what you're observing in the UK is is very, unfortunately, very similar to what's happening here in the US across many states in terms of demonizing and restricting the rights of, of trans populations and the LGBTQ population more broadly. Um, but I think that this this paper and this work really forced an important mind shift for a lot of people uh, in the atrocity prevention community. I think we all saw the the restricting of space for this community and abuses against this community and and saw that they were hate crimes, but didn't quite have that that mental shift into thinking, oh, this is actually an atrocity risk. Um, and this this work is really forcing a broader, more intersectional thinking about um, how the horrible things you're seeing against this community actually is, you know, leading to a certain path um, of atrocity crimes, atrocity risks, um, and should be taken seriously. So um, I'm wondering if you could share some of the recommendations that you came up with from the report. Um. Yeah, so um, we've got we've got recommendations across a range of different areas. So from from civil society to national governments to UN, um, the the I mean, Kate might come in on some more of the detail, but the the core principle here is about um, recognizing the um, the you know unique risks that face LGBTQI plus people um, and their the um, relationship between persecution of queer people and atrocity crimes, uh, which we know, you know, goes back as far as the Holocaust, but hasn't really, like, become a core part of this this literature and policy. So it's, yeah, it's about recognising those connections, but also um, including LGBTQI plus people within the the conversation and, you know, without, um, I guess, with, with any kind of early warning, you need a diversity of voices and it's that it's that diversity of voices that that really um, you know brings in the the different types of persecution and the different ways that that persecution is is playing out. Um, but yeah, Kate might like to come in on um, some more of the detail. We do have a lot of recommendations at the end of the report. Yeah, I really liked what you just said there, Jess. About any kind of early warning needs to have a diversity of voices, and I think actually that's such a fundamental that seems to us so obvious and actually it's still not you know and and I think that that really goes to kind of the heart of perhaps from 
the atrocity prevention practice piece, which was the tiny, tiny bit that I was able to contribute to this very rich report that really was the work of all of the other authors. But the tiny little geeky bit that I was sort of really looking at is that um, I reviewed, you know, 14 or 15 of those publicly available frameworks of analysis that are used by whether it's, you know, the, the US, the UN, the EU, NGOs and so on to assess whether atrocity risks are there or not. And not a single one mentions LGBTQI plus people. Whether that is their needs, experience, vulnerabilities. Um, I mean, most of them don't mention gender. And if they do, it's women and girls coupled together in the most reductive and binary of ways that, you know, we all on this call find exhausting um, and and counterproductive. And what was interesting for me as we were doing this work and we, you know, we, we looked at some cases, as, as Jess said, from from the Holocaust um, or actually those years beforehand, you know, in the, in the 30s and the fact that it was those free spaces of sexual expression in Berlin and elsewhere that were the first to be assaulted and attacked. Um, and I, I was thinking, well, hang on, I know that from my work on what happened in former Yugoslavia, you know, the kind of massive imposition of a very heteronormative masculine um, set of norms, rules, legislation um, came first um, and and was ignored. I, I remember, you know, being, being shown some letters that um, the women's network in Zagreb had sent out to, it was called something like the Women's Global Congress or, or something like that, one of those global feminist um, networks that existed in, I guess, 80s and 90s. They sent out these kind of requests for help saying, you know, essentially we're being put back in the kitchen, abortion rights are being curtailed, divorce rights are being curtailed. Like, this isn't good for anyone. And they were kind of, there was no response either from you know sort of the the global feminist networks or anywhere and I feel like that failure for us to really learn that is important um and that was one of the important pieces for me the other is just more generally that thinking about the intersections between LGBTQI rights and peace and security um, and I really urge everyone to have a look at the recent report by the UN independent expert on discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity um, that he presented to the General Assembly last autumn. And I think that that is such an important contribution to the conversation in the United Nations because it is looking at those intersections and recognizing that within the UN system, it is so siloed. It is so hard to talk about LGBTI rights anywhere in the UN. Um, and, and so I think like that is our fundamental recommendation of let's think about what that looks like for us, depending on what table we sit at. And for us in the NGO sphere, I think one of the easiest things to do is just to mix up a little bit by who we chat to. Um, and it's been so nice being able to have conversations where, um, you know, we're hanging out much more with, um, you know, the organizations that are at the forefront of global LGBTI rights. And we're learning so much every day, 
not just about this particular program, but about different kind of experiences of solidarity, network responses, how certain communities responded to, say, what happened in Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, that are applicable you know, for all sorts of other circumstances. And at the same time, and this is absolutely not why we did this work or thought it was important, but we're also finding that the language and tools and networks of atrocity prevention are in fact also useful for some of our partners in um, global LGBTQI rights. Um, And that actually that language is also sort of sometimes helpful in their advocacy. So sometimes reshaping the world isn't as radical as you think, as you think it is, it's sometimes just a conversation. Um, and then the, the last thing I want to say, and this kind of goes back, I think, Jacqueline, to what you're saying at the beginning of of, of that question of, of why I I really think at least this report helps us on the way to a conversation. And it certainly didn't start one because other people have been having this. It's just perhaps in a different space. And I don't know what you think about this. And maybe I'm, I don't know, I'm taking us on a tangent. I feel like the sphere and practice of mass atrocity prevention, and even to some extent, the academic experience and engagement with it has been born out of, to a very great degree, an understanding around genocide and the paradigm of genocide and the uniqueness of genocide and I've rabbited on in many other situations about why I find that limiting. But one of the things that I have really interrogated since we've started our queering atrocity prevention program is some of the other bad consequences of this overemphasis on genocide. And so the fact that genocide only protects certain characteristics and not others means that that is one reason why I think our sphere of practice has maybe been less good at focusing on the needs and vulnerabilities of others. And LGBTQI people are one of those. There are others, though, you know, whether that is age, whether that is gender, you know, there isn't, we we are having a bit more of a kind of exciting and diverse conversation about gender now, but it's taken a while. Um, I think, you know, thinking about the compounded threats faced by those that have or perceive to have disability in, in contexts of mass atrocity and mass violence remains just a kind of add-on in some um, programming. You know, we're, we're not really having a conversation with it, whereas, you know, those of us that kind of have studied any experience of mass violence know that nearly always those that have disabilities or are perceived to have disabilities face disproportionate targeting, whether that is, you know, I won't give examples because then people will write into your podcast and say, I've got it wrong. Um, But I feel that a more inclusive and intersectional approach to mass atrocity prevention or violence prevention necessarily means complicating the experience of mass violence, including the experience of genocide. And that is quite a tricky one. But I feel that queering atrocity prevention helps us do that a little bit. One of, one of the other, um, I mean, I obviously agree with all of those things. Um, I'm just thinking about one of the other recommendations that, that came out in the report. Um, 
which I think was was Kate's initiative, was thinking really thinking about who who is R two P for, um, and I guess the the limitation in in a lot of R two P practice and research so far is is the assumption that that um, you know the civilians that we're talking about here are cisgender and heterosexual, and that's I think that's been an implicit part of a lot of the debates and, and discussion on on R two P. It's assuming a singular kind of image of, of what a civilian is uh, and what, what other groups they might belong to. So I think um, just recognising the diversity that exists in civilians, whether that's across, you know, um, gender and sexuality, whether it's across disability, um, as, as Kate mentioned, I think that's, the, yeah, really digging into who, who R2P is for is important. Yes, that's fantastic. I mean, one of the conversations we've been having much more lately, though, probably should have been having sooner is unpacking what populations means. I mean, it's, it's, it's a useful word and useful language um, to distinguish, you know, we're not just talking about civilians, we're talking about everyone within a country, but that also creates kind of a homogenous block to some degree um, that in many ways has been an easy heuristic almost for for policymakers and others to kind of diminish the individuality of people within a society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also that then has corresponded with a sense of then what that violence against those populations looks like. And I think if you take, for example, the experience of queer populations in Egypt, for example, you know, we are not the only ones to have raised questions about whether that breaches um, the threshold of crimes against humanity because it's so widespread and so systematic. Um, but it doesn't look the same as mass atrocity crimes, you know, crimes against humanity where those the populations or, or that are targeted are in the same concentrated ge- like geographic area. Um, and so I think that there really is a, a question about sort of how how we conceive what this violence looks like um and then that that is when sort of you know you get into the definitional game of of how much does the definitions and thresholds of this violence matter and you know we are not lawyers at protection approaches so are blessed with not having to necessarily engage too much with that but i do recognize that that's important and pushing at the boundaries um or perhaps not the boundaries the the norms and assumptions that limit our, defi- our conceptual definition of these crimes, um, I really do think is important because exactly as you say, sort of that word populations needs to be interrogated, but it, it I think has um, drawn out in people's minds um, assumptions of, of, of what that means. But then as, as, as Jess said, you know, that we, we unapologetically have at the beginning of that paper, you know, we start with the with the premise or the statement that R2P is for LGBTQI populations. No one has come to us yet and disagreed with us on that. Um, It doesn't mean we have the answers on what to do, but if you start with that, if you agree with that statement, then it is our job who are in the business of R2P to think about how those responses and programs can be designed in a manner that are appropriately inclusive and or distinct when need be. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and we'd be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at www.globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.